I have the great pleasure of being joined today in UK Columns Plymouth studio by Charles Ortel. Welcome, Charles. Alex, thanks for having me out here. It's a delight to be to Plymouth. I've, uh, it's my first visit. We should talk about your cap first, shouldn't we? It's got Greek on it. <laughs> Molon labe. Come up and take them. Explain. Yes, this is given to me by one of our great uh, viewers and friends who's done a lot of work with us, uh, Jason Goodman and me, on, on various projects. And it, it's basically from, a, you're, you're, I think, more of an, uh, an expert on the subject, but it's, it's uh, I think, a clear message to people that things are different in the United States than they might be in the UK, particularly when it comes to gun ownership. And you're no stranger to the UK. We'll be getting into this as uh, the interview proceeds. Uh, the the one-sentence version of why you're talking to us is you've become the acknowledged world expert on the Clintons' funny business with their money, and it has many British ends to it, doesn't it? And, and you worked as a financier in Britain for much of your career. I, I have. Yeah, I worked in many countries, and including Britain, but uh, the business model for stealing money from a charity to fund political campaigns is one that the Clintons popularized, and many others, sadly, around the world, including in your country, uh, may be following as well. Charles, I have a rundown here of your, your potted career. Uh, your full name is Charles K. Ortel. You retired from investment banking and private equity 21 years ago now, 2002. You were at Dillon Reed from 1980 to 1991, uh, a lot of boom years there. Uh, you ran a merger boutique, so that I think is tailor-made commercial uh, takeovers, isn't it? Corporate right. takeovers. Uh, that was funded by a Japanese outfit, Mizuho. That was 1991 to 1994. You were then with the Chart Group from 94 to 2002. You took a five-year career break to raise two children. You came back to work in Manhattan in February 2007. And this was your big break in publicity, wasn't it? Uh, alleged fraud at General Electric, which many of the viewers will know is a, a giant of US and world enterprise. And that was a very a strange experience. I mean, most people do not have the, the, the fun, frankly, of spending time, most men, uh, spending time when their children, when they're in primary school and boarding school, going to their games, going to their shows, going to their rehearsals, and, and watching their minds blossom at that crucial Age. So I, I was focused on that from 2002 to seven. turned my attention back to, should I go back to Wall Street, figured I better brush up on the big companies, how are they valued? And I expected when I looked at GE to see magnificence. I mean, I dealt with GE on projects and they always would lecture me. Uh, Shark Group was a relatively small company. And they'd lecture me about, you know, this is the GE way. You guys don't know what we're doing. A bit like Rainer Fulmich exposing Volkswagen as well. Probably. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But you found a different story. I found what the whole big pitch on GE was always that the GE Capital was a, a magic money machine, and don't worry, the parent company is guaranteeing GE Capital, and the parent company has a AAA rating. And most of the investment banks and large banks, by the time GE got into trouble, did not have a AAA rating. So they didn't actually do their work. And the USA doesn't have a AAA rating at the moment. We'll see how long it remains in the A category at this rate. <laughs> Definitely should be a B for Biden. Uh, I don't have a slide for it, but uh, the article that you've told me uh, about that covers this uh, is easily found if people use a search engine and just look for Charles Ortel General Electric. It's a piece written in mid-May 2009 by Tim Raymond, high up at the Times and the Sunday Times, uh, and the title is The Man with a Trillion Dollar Price on His Head. This refers to Joseph Cassano at AIG. 
Right. What was going on there? Well, so Tim is perhaps one of the most, uh, in my experience, one of the most gifted writers that I've ever come across. I mean, he, he, he when his his writing is magic, and he we he and I spent quite a bit of time. He wrote about GE specifically, and one of the big takeaways about GE was the system must be ro broken if GE could get, be in such bad shape, and so many people could put so much money behind it and then all, only lose their money. And th this is your working paradigm for the rest of your career, isn't it? Now you've gone solo. Is the system must be broken? Let me find out where. Exactly, and and, and maybe there's a way to try to fix it. And mm -hmm. so I focused first on for-profit fraud. And then that got me. This, into this is fraud by companies that are registered to make money, right? Exactly. Subject to a much lower regulatory regime in Britain, America, or any other allegedly civilized country than a charity would be. Well, for profit companies, I think people around for profit companies, the investors, in theory, all want to make sure that their investment is sound. So there are many, many people kind of jealously looking at are they making a profit? Are they not making a profit? Should I buy more? Should I? It's actually the reverse that in the, in, I find that in the not-for-profit world, that's where the scoundrels are because there's a ton of money. In the U.S., I think the not-for-profit sector approaches 20% of our GDP. That is massive. Right. How, how many countries have a GDP even one-fifth of the size of America's? Not many. Not many. So we're talking maybe a, a Brazil-sized country is just American charities? Maybe bigger than Brazil. And, and, and that's, that's, when you, that's talking about their annual operation, then you have the wealth that's in them. I mean, you're thinking here about Harvard and Yale and, mm -hmm. and many... Which are your schools? We'll get into that, actually. Let's, let's bring up uh, a bit of your past, actually. Um, here is you at Yale in 1975, September, isn't it? Uh, you're a fresh-faced 19-year-old. Uh, you've just got back from a summer in Egypt, hence the, uh, the bronzed skin. <laughs> yeah. And you're shaking the hand of well, he's in his grave now, but I'll say it's the, uh, the well-known uh, child abuser, Sir Edward Heath, uh, who in Britain and America spoke to conservative students. That's why you're hosting him there. Yeah, I was, uh, I was at Yale and there was there's something there modeled on the Oxford Political Union called the Yale Political Union. And I was chairman of the centrist party, which was then the conservative party. And mm -hmm. while I had been away in Egypt on my summer job, the bureaucracy just arranged for Ted Heath to come and address the union and also uh, I chaired a little symposium, then I showed so, him around. So you had a federally organized party called the Centrist Party 50 no, years ago, it, it was no, just on, on campus? Conservative Party. Oh, okay. Conservative Party, yeah. It was uh, the fame, uh, the union had, of course, on the left, it was the Progressive Party, then it was the Liberal Party, the Centrist was the Conservative, then the Tory Party, a party that believed that we made a big mistake in 76 and afterwards, and then the party of the right that was to the right of that, mm -hmm. that was Buckley's party. Oh, William F. Buckley, yes, right. National Review, yeah. Right. And so I was, I actually, I, then I was chairman, and after my term, I ran for president of, of the Elbow, and I lost in, I just lost, let's just say mm -hmm. that. And I didn't like the way I lost, so I actually put together a coalition of the, the Progressive Party and the parties, and conservative, and the parties on the right. And we beat the liberal uh, in my next in the next election. Uh, the progressive candidate was a good friend of mine, personal friend of mine, and that was not lost actually on the Republican experts who come and address in New York various gatherings. And they were talking about this prior to 2016. They were saying, "You know, I was at Yale, and uh, it was possible then to put together a coalition of progressives and conservatives." He didn't mention my name, mm -hmm. but I went up to the speaker and I said, "Exactly when were you at Yale?" And he said, "Did you know anything about this?" A little bit. Uh, <laughs> I arranged it. And uh, I'm not saying that I'm responsible for what happened in 2016, but that experience of losing mm. uh, uh, just 
left a strong distaste in my mouth for elective policies and much uh, elective uh, activities. I just very comfortable behind the scenes. So politics lost you in your freshman year, basically. Pretty much. So you were 19 then. That was your first summer um, or your summer after your first so- year. Sophomore year. Actually. Oh, OK. Yes, because September right. already. So you were still 19. Uh, the next year you were 20. And on your summer vacation, there you are negotiating with Tuareg tribesmen in Niger, a country now suddenly in the news again right. over the price of this scimitar we see in the foreground. Yeah, th- this is actually an interesting picture. I-, I just recently had to rearrange my personal belongings and I came across this picture, which used to be in my office, Dylan Reed, and later. As you remind- sure you weren't a CIA officer with those sunshades? <laughs> age 20? I don't think so. But but the, the, the moral of this picture, well, there's several uh, lessons from this picture. First of all, you're not allowed to take pictures of these people. I didn't take the picture. The person you can't see did and then gave it to me. And thankfully, we didn't get in trouble for it. The second is that this guy wanted to, this guy's a war, an actual warrior, and, and he didn't really want to sell a sword, but we started to go, and he, was, he wanted like three times what I thought it was worth. And so I kept this picture uh, right in my, uh, in my view at my office to remind me, don't overpay when you do a deal. Don't. And so though I would wish I owned the sword, I think I have a lot more from the lesson. Would you rather do business with Tuareg tribesmen or the men of Wall Street? <laughs> That's a very tough. The old people on Wall Street. Uh, Dillery was very much my word is my bond kind of place. If the legal papers don't reflect what, what our deal understanding was, we're going to change the legal papers. Wall Street evolved beyond that after I left to a place where most firms were publicly traded and the partners didn't really have a lot of skin in the game. When I was a partner, I had a lot of skin in the game. So we were very cautious. And you're actually a double bill in the um, Ivy League because after your uh, graduation in 78, your bachelor's from Yale, uh, you went up to Massachusetts for Harvard. I I did. And I actually acquired a wife in the process. I I had a summer job in London uh, for a bank and I had no clean clothes when I came. I was flying standby. So the cleanest uh, set of shirt I had was a Yale crew shirt from row. I didn't row, but I had a crew shirt. And so I go in for a registration, and this very nice young lady looks at me beaming and says, so, a traitor, huh? And I didn't know Kennedy had said this, but I just, out of, you know, 8, 8.30 in the morning, I said, looked at her, and I said, young lady, I went to Yale to get an education. I've come here to learn my trade. <laughs> you didn't run into skull and bones at Yale? Uh, if I did, I'd have to leave the room, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, of course, I had my roommate. My roommate of mine was in Skull and Bones. I was, I was in actually, believe it or not, something called the Elizabethan Club, which is one of the finest uh, collections of, of uh, Elizabethan era English literature. Is that was the club and, and something called the Fence Club. I had the pleasure of uh, taking you out to dinner last night, and uh, you know a lot about English history, English literature, going back to the Norman Conquest. We were discussing in the ca- the cab this morning. So, you you in your five year break, I think, when you were bringing up the children, uh, you read exhaustively on your various European routes, which are also Irish, German, Dutch, Brazilian, Brazilian, Brazilian Portuguese. Yeah. yeah. I, it's funny. I, when my first uh, semester at Yale, I thought I was going to be a history major. And I took a course. It's the only, I got two C's in my life, colonial history. And, uh, and my mother was a musician, was horrified about this African music. And of course, I took in Kenya. But I see, I'd never seen a C on a report card. So I said, no history. Let's do political science and economics. And then for that five-year period, yeah, I I read exhaustively uh, without a professor really to help me. And I'm still 
finding a lot to learn about English history. And going down the zones of Africa, we started with Arab North Africa, Egypt, then the Sahel, Niger. You mentioned Kenya just now. You were also in Ghana. So you've been around right. all the zones except maybe Southern Africa. I've been to South Africa, been mm -hmm. to Mauritius, uh, but I, I do want to do more traveling in Africa when it's possible to travel. And you were studying in uh, two of these countries, Ghana and Kenya, as right. well as in Britain. As in Britain, and uh, I was in Cairo. I was living in the American University in Cairo, so I was living with students. But yeah, I, I had it. My parents were very nice to me and let me travel almost wherever I wanted to go at a young age. Wonderful. And uh, you, actually, before we move on from your past, uh, you've given me a note that's the, the most challenging school you went to. Of course, you Americans refer to colleges and universities as school as well, was actually one that we would call a school in Britain. Right. It was uh, before you went up to university at all. And that was Horace Mann School. Yeah, that's been in the news for Ted Heath style problems. Uh, but actually, when I was there, when those problems apparently were going on. I, I didn't directly encounter any of that. Same with me at rugby, which I've written for, for uh, about for UK column. Uh, they were talking about buggery in the recent past or in other right. parts of the school, but it never came near me. Right. But what, what, the thing that was really nice about Horace Mann is that it was, it was modeled on the English system. So it started in our, our first form, and we, we called it forms. Uh, the 13-year-old boys, right? Yeah, seventh grade. Mm -hmm. I entered at age 12 and graduated at age 18. And um, it was the kind of place where the first year it was all, you know, how, how challenging can it be? But by the end of the first year, they separated you into honors, non-honors. Mm. And I, I've all, I'm the eldest, so I've always loved learning. My father had a PhD. A very German-inspired thing. And I think Germany did inspire uh, East Coast American education a lot. The idea that at 14 years old, which the Germans and Dutch still do, they say, you're going to go to university and you don't have what it takes. Right. Quite harsh by modern, particularly English standards. Right. Scotland does it to some extent. So what was special about this school, it's, on the outs it's in New York City on the very fringe um, but it has a beautiful campus with, it had when I was there, nine tennis courts and football field and two gyms and swimming. And it had amazing athletic facilities, theater, uh, all sorts of extracurricular activities. Uh, but beyond that, the caliber of the classroom was, was rough and excellent preparation. I mean, frankly, by the time I got to both Yale and Harvard, I found the teaching was elementary compared to what happened at Horace Mann. And they gave great tools to us that I use to this day. And a good example of that we'll bring on screen uh, now, which is research skills you used to write a piece for Breitbart uh, back in 2015, I think this was, wasn't it? Or 2017, one of the 15, two. it was yeah, 2015. March. And uh, look at the number of Facebook shares over the years, 83,000, 83 and a half thousand. And you're asking here, with so many red flags, why isn't the Inland Revenue Service, the US tax authority at federal level, auditing the Clinton Foundation. This was your big splash into what you're now associated with. You are Mr. Follow the Clinton money. Well, thank you for that. Um, yeah, I, I started with the Clinton Foundation not knowing, uh, obviously, as much as I know now about how charities are supposed to be regulated. And the big issue with the Clinton Foundation at the time, I didn't even appreciate it, is I, I thought it existed as a legal entity. And in fact, I would argue that it doesn't. And it, it, it's so shocking when you look at the number of of, of charities that have been attacked, uh, the Clinton the Clinton charity gets a path, a pass, uh, and, and the same tale I think you see in the Biden family. Well, let's talk Bidens because they're the the current dynasty in charge of American politics. Uh, here's a piece uh, of yours very recently, July 2023, just last month. We're recording this late August. Biden hiding in plain sight. Well, 
I mean, Biden's haplessness is is certainly there in plain sight, but you're not talking about his his pranks and his dementia, are you? No. I, the thing about Biden is, is first of all, I, I, he also came to Yale before Heath did, I think, and I met him when he was when he when he could speak. Was he already the senator for junior yeah. senator from yeah. Delaware back he, then? He was pretty impressive, actually. And, and Delaware is the tax break state, isn't it? It's where everyone wants their headquarters. Uh, in part due to him mm-hmm. and due to his late son, Bo Biden, who was the attorney general of Delaware. Um, so. Yeah, when you, in America, on politicians, you can get their tax returns. Uh, we'll see one later. Yeah, and, and when you look closely into them, you find out that Biden was getting a whole bunch of money, a lot of money, from these two very, very suspicious companies. And uh, I think you're intimately familiar with, with startup firms. You know that a startup firm is unlikely to make money in its first year. Well, I mean, I started one up and uh, I certainly didn't. <laughs> no, it's just common. I mean, you, you, it's very difficult to do. So the, here's Biden in his first year uh, out of being uh, vice president in 17, making a tremendous amount of money and routing that money through two shell, what looked to me to be two shell companies. And uh, you know, this, this was picked up actually by Zero Hedge, by Lucian, by Rantingly. And I hope uh, we've, we've sent it to various congressional and Senate committees as well. I hope they're really diving in there. Mentioning Zero Hedge, one of your favorite news sources. Uh, this isn't exactly the same issue. Uh, it's, it's more recent as well. It's just uh, the same date, July 2023, same month. Nothing to see here. And this is by Tyler Durden, which is the, um, right. well, and you can see right there that it's not a real person. It's, it's a nom de plume for various people. In this case, Jonathan Turley, who has a think tank of his own, doesn't he? Um, he's talking about the Biden scandal mounting. Again, this isn't Biden's uh, running his mouth off or, or uh, uh, sniffing hair. Uh, or, or making odd comments about children and ice cream. Uh, this is Biden and money. Right. So what is this growing Biden scandal? Well, when, when you go back, Biden became, went into the Senate in the 70s when I think a senator made $44,000 a year pre-tax. Mm-hmm. And on that, you had to support you know, kids going through college, you had to save for retirement. At a high level, you don't need to get into details the way I did in that, in, in that piece. At a high level, how does somebody who's never really worked in the private sector have two mansions and mm. two big, expensive mansions. And Delaware ain't cheap. It's not cheap. And then the, just the running cost of those places, you know, the weather goes very hot and very cold. And if humidity, you have rain, you have snow, whatever. You, you have the maintenance staff. You have to have maintenance, you pay taxes and insurance. I mean, mm. there's no way he legitimately acquired either mansion. There's no way he legitimately has been managing either mansion. And there's no way he legitimately made the kind of money that's on his tax return. And one of your current presidential candidates, uh, R.F. Kennedy Jr., has called for a real investigation of the Biden family. Um, as uh, reported here by the Washington Examiner, one of the smaller D.C. titles, isn't it? One that actually yeah. tells more truth than the Washington Post or the Washington Times. Yeah, I, I'm not a huge fan of the Kennedy family. And so I was, I was disinclined to even engage my mind thinking about RFK, but I've had the pleasure of watching the Tucker interview and, th- and, and going down to Washington, D.C. with Jason to the time when he testified. He's a very impressive person. This is Jason Goodman we'll be mentioning later, but he's your closest colleague now. Right. Yeah. And, and, but RFK is, is, you know, he's somebody who, he has a, a difficult speaking voice. And so it makes it at first tough to listen to him. But if you can get over that, uh, he is, he's throwing some major league shade against Democrats and Republicans in, I think, a constructive and potentially productive manner, which is not the way uh, the left and the cancel people zing you. Actually, just as a sidebar to this, as you've got a seasoned view of what will fly in U.S. politics, 
Should RFK get the democratic ticket and should he be elected, do you think the people will manage to cope with his speech impediment? Because there's this tradition, as with France, that the president has to project this great macho-ness. And RFK, even before he developed in adult life, this impediment was more of a thoughtful guy than a, a booming stentorian. Well, without getting deeply negative, I think Biden has broken all traditions of what a president must do. And the American public is you know, dealing with that now, the world public's dealing with it. The latest auto cue moment at the time we're recording is uh, ask press politely to leave. (laughs) Exactly. So Kennedy is, RFK is far better than that. I don't think he's going to get the Democratic nomination. I do think there's a possibility that he will run as an independent. Mm -hmm. And um, when he does that, I think the independent slice in American politics is actually the biggest slice So he may get quite a few popular votes. Whether he gets electoral college votes is another question. Mark Anderson reports uh, from the heartland U.S. states a lot for us, and he always makes this point that the independents are getting more organized than ever before. They even have the Independent National Convention now, which he reports for UK column uh, uh, from, you know, and they're getting as organized as the RNC and the DNC. Because they're kept off the ballot by hook or by crook, aren't they, in many cases, by threshold requirements and financial requirements. Right. Well, I mean, it's it's just fair to say when you look at modern American history from, say, 89 forward, the established parties have come to resemble one another, Mm -hmm. and they basically have failed the private sector worker. The uni party, as they're now called. The uni party, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's go on with the Biden section, because this is not actually um, uh, a political campaign site. This is part of your congressional uh, structure, isn't it? There is a particular committee here, the Committee on Oversight and Accountability. Is this bicameral or just a House committee? This is, a, well, this is a House committee that uh, has Democrats on it. It's led by James Comer, I think, who has made enormous progress in a short time frame, uh, beginning to see uh, some of the, the trail of woe that is associated with the Biden family. So far, he's uncovered 20 million in questionable payments. And my reaction, uh, as I've mentioned in prior interviews, is that to, to, in effect, sell the United States out to foreign interests for $20 million is really stupid, right? If you're going to do that. Do it for $2 billion, right? Or a trillion, yeah. right? You know, not, not $20 million. So I say that to say it's highly likely that Comer has not yet found all of the money. And let's just bring this back on screen because something I found interesting is before he gets into China and Ukraine, the first item, whether that's chronologically first or uh, probably is because it's a timeline or, or first in some other sense, is Romania. I've never heard of uh, Biden corruption in Romania. John Solomon has been talking about, of Just the News fame, has been talking about uh, Romania and expect, expect to see big news coming out of Romania. I mean, they just happen to be a frontline state in the Ukraine war with an American battalion. Exactly. Exactly. I think people are, uh, I mean, Washington, D.C. Is, is certainly a heady place. I hate it. You know, well, you were a New Yorker, you would. Well, no, I just hate, I just go there. I just think these people are blowing up trillions of dollars. They're going to make my children, and if I have grandchildren, their lives miserable if we let them stay away, keep on with this. And you meet these people, and they don't seem to have anything that they're actually doing. You know, it's not a product or a service they're providing. It's either twiddling their thumbs. I mean, the number of people who manage to get uh, onto those corridors uh, where the offices are in the Capitol building, uh, often they pretend to be a friend of uh, some, you know, celebrity Congress person. Uh, and manage to get the congresswoman or congressman to come out before they do their 
video hit piece right. suggests to me that they're spending most of their time, if they're not in votes, just twiddling their thumbs in the office or, or doing conference calls for money or something. Well, what the, the, what the people who are managing the con Congress people do a very good job of is overloading all the Congress people so, yeah. and all the senators. Right. So in the case of Congress people, you have to run for re-election every two years. So you've got to raise money all the time. And then they put you on 10 different committees and subcommittees, and you've got all these staff people writing reports to one another. When really, in my experience with troubled companies, what you do is you don't say, here's a list of a thousand priorities. You say, what is the most important thing that we need to do? Let's get that done in the first day. Right. I mean, if you want to go down in history like Congressman Reese or, uh, you know, uh, Church was also a House investigation, wasn't it? Congressman Church in the uh, 70s. Senator. He was a senator. Yeah. That's, a, that's a different time scale. Of course, right. they only get reelected every six years, six for, years. deliberately for continuity. But, you know, in the 50s, these congressmen did manage. In, in Reese's case, he, he was a very uh, down-home guy from, from East Tennessee, but he managed to be the, the celebrity, uh, in a good sense, investigator of the tax-exempt foundations, although he got stymied in the end. Well, it's interesting, Tennessee, because the one congressperson who reacted very favorably to my work was from Tennessee, Marsha Blackburn. And she and her staff did an enormous amount of work in 15 They're very 16, smart cookies in Tennessee. Yeah. And, and uh, Marsha is, I've met her several times and she's now a senator and she's, she is really a fantastic individual. I wish we had a hundred senators like her. And they're talking about secession in several southern states, including Tennessee now. Right. Yeah. So anyway, um, moving on, I, I hesitate to say hurrying on because this is also fascinating, but we're trying to get to the Clintons sure. uh, as we go, but we're still on the Biden's side. Here's Politico, uh, which has now been bought out as we had uh, coverage of in a recent UK column article because they, they, both, both the Washington and the Brussels titles are flagging financially. They're only read, as the name suggests, by hacks now, staff for exactly. politicians. But Betsy Woodruff Swan is reporting here in uh, May 2020 that the Trump administration declassified the full text of an email sent on inauguration day uh, by Susan Rice. Uh, and it describes uh, a meeting during the transition period, January 2017, in the Oval Office about meeting Michael Flynn and the Russian interference alleged in the 2016 election. Great big deep rabbit hole. Some of our audience will know the ins and outs and others will not care to. Uh, but why is this relevant to the Biden financial trail? Because Biden was in that room. Biden was in that meeting. He was outgoing vice president, right, right. under Obama. Right. And, and in my world, uh, actually, after I left, well, after I retired, uh, use of the internet became more prevalent, if not ubiquitous at this point. And it's a very serious, not uh, a regulatory offense to use a personal email as opposed to your firm's email mm. on, on any uh, investment bank business. So the idea that all these top people, uh, you know, Hillary, uh, Obama, Biden, and others, many others, were using alias emails to talk about sent classified information. And in some cases, attaching classified information and saying that is outrageous. But there is a caveat there because, I mean, if I think about my Cambridge chums, including my old roommate that went into the city of London, uh, or my now colleague, Mike Robinson in the city, uh, they would be penalized very heavily for that kind of thing. They had very important uh, document safe procedures at the end of the day. And if I compare it with what I knew at GCHQ, I'm not saying GCHQ as British Intelligence Agency was lax, but I would say from what I heard that the document safety uh, protocols and the, the penalties for breaking classifications seemed almost more stringent and more universally followed uh, in the world of money making than in the world of spookery. Well, that's, that's depressing, actually, to hear that, because that means you were easily hacked. But uh, 
possibly. But in our world, in America, uh, one thing to remember here is when people talk about Hillary Clinton's email scandal, they need to understand that she conducted 100% of her business and 100% of her monkey business using uh, on servers and using unvetted electronic devices outside the government system. No secretary of state before or after has ever dared to right. do that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you've got here a note that you wrote for me. During eight long years, while supposedly fundamentally transforming America, Obama, who occasionally partook of the same to give her cover, I think, and others had likely positioned themselves to garner outsized financial returns when they retired from public service. The Bidens, um, also the Clintons, Obama, all of these Democrats, grandees, like to position themselves and even get themselves written into school curriculums in various parts of the states as having had a lifetime of public service. Then they go through the revolving door into the after office period of their lives. And you're saying they're all lining themselves up and you wouldn't exclude Republicans because you'd, you'd have no particular respect for the Bushes either, uh, who are distant relatives, I think, of yours. Right. But um, you're saying that they all line themselves up to make a pretty penny in retirement, despite this service-mindedness. Well, you, it's interesting. You could, there is a book written about this and there is a, you can go on to the Williams and Connolly, which is a powerhouse law firm in headquartered in DC. You can go on there, you can look up there's a partner there. Are these one of these K Street lawyers? Right, who actually boasts, and it's online as of this morning, I think, he boasts about that his business is transitioning public servants into the private sector. Makes it sound like a sex change. Well, it, it, and it's preposterous, I, because I had the experience, the chairman of Dillon Reed when I was there was uh, Nick Brady, who became our treasury secretary. And I was friendly with him as a, you know, a young guy, and he was my mentor. And when he was Treasury Secretary, I would go down to Washington, D.C. When I still was at Dillon Reed, we never talked about business, not remotely talking about, is it ironclad rule? You don't even dare doing that. So the notion, and Nick, of course, was wealthy before he even got to Dillon Reed. So he, he didn't need to, the services of that law firm. But a lot of these people, including W. Bush, mm -hmm. including H.W., and definitely centrally involving Bill Clinton. There's a book written about Williams and Connolly, and Bill himself has admitted the role that Williams and Connolly played, lending him millions of dollars, not forcing him, not forcing him to pay his legal fees currently when he was president. I mean, how many people get that option of not paying a seven or $10 million legal bill while the law firm is still doing but years of work for you? Without going too much into the Oxford backstory of uh, him being a Rhodes Scholar, that would be for another day. But um, you were just telling me before we started recording uh, that if you look carefully at Clinton's autobiography, just called My Life, isn't it? You like to call it My Lie. Um, when he was in his more or less down and out or down in the dumps phase uh, towards that end of the, the year in Oxford, which he didn't stay around to complete, did he? Which you find suspicious. Um, or you, you fill me in on the, what I've got wrong. But he suddenly found himself invited regularly to West End of London parties. It would be difficult enough even to pay for his fare down there right. back in those days. And somebody is, is subbing him the money. Right. You know, and, you know, giving him the opportunity to, to take a second honeymoon with, with Hillary and stuff that doesn't really happen in the real world. Yeah, that book is, is my, the working title for that book, believe it or not, was My Struggle. And somebody, hey boss, uh, another dude wrote that book. You don't, you gotta change the title. But, uh, and then he changed it. I call it actually my lies, plural. Mm -hmm. And Bill, I believe, was at Oxford for two years. It, it was in his first year that he started with those parties. But for some reason, in his second year around March, he had, you know, he was very close to graduating. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, he but, leaves. 
you're always quoted, or when, when you uh, bring up this point, it's, I suppose, because you're used to warmer climes than ours, you, you, you lay it on thick that why would an American who'd endured a winter at Oxford right. uh, scram, as we used to say, just before the fun period of the May balls? Right. Right. And, and it does make sense because, you know, he would have been sunlight deprived coming from the southern US, yeah. having gone through the winter, but he, he, he made off in March. It, do, it doesn't make any sense to me, uh, particularly because I, I studied at a far lesser place, I won't even mention the name. But I got there in the September of 1976, and one of the things that struck me back then is the buildings, it seemed to me, were not insulated the same way American buildings right. were. And so it was really, you know, on like a sure. not-so-cold day, inside the building, it could be really cold. Also, the windows were not double-glazed. I mean, it, you know, this is not you being snobby. This is, this is a reality for people yeah. who have used, been used to the comfort of New York and right. coming to 1970s student accommodation in Oxford, you know, I can right. imagine. So I, that's inexplicable, Partic mm. particularly for somebody. You can say what you want about Bill Clinton. I've never met him and I don't want to meet him. He definitely has the gift of gab. So I could imagine that he would make it through the Oxford or Cambridge system of meeting with your tutor right. every 10 days, two weeks. And But and I know this firsthand from when he was at Georgetown as well. He spent most of his time chasing skirt, often French exchange students was his preference, <laughs> wasn't it? Uh, rather than doing his essays. So you know, how did the Rhodes people pick him and keep him given that track record? Because Cecil Rhodes set it up, supposedly, so that only the creme de la creme could get in. Well, I laughingly refer to these people as rogues scholars, not Rhodes scholars. And there are a lot of examples today of people yeah. who just are inexplicably members of that alumni group. And they end up with a World Economic Forum these days often, don't they? Or Secretary of Transportation or Susan Rice mm. was a Rhodes scholar. Right. Well, that takes us on to the next slide, which is of the same period. Uh, CNN politics, you wouldn't expect it. And it is also as recently as January 2023. They are reporting that Biden had whirlwind final days back in January 2017 as Veep under Obama uh, because his aides were scrambling to close his White House office. Your note on this is, one wonders exactly why with so much at risk and so many domestic and foreign challenges and uncertainty swirling, and of course, Vice President is effectively the chief diplomat for your nation, isn't it as well? He's, right. he's often representing the president abroad on de delicate missions. One wonders why Biden would decide to take a brief trip over to Ukraine and Switzerland to attend Davos, returning to DC right before Trump's inauguration. What's going on? It sounds to me like he was buttoning up loose ends, maybe checking on a Swiss bank account as well. But uh, it, it just, it makes no sense. I'm a huge fan in unraveling GE, unraveling the Clinton Foundation, a huge fan of creating timelines mm -hmm. and going back. Because what happens is people, windbags in politics, tend to write books. Right. And aides do as well. Blair has written a thick book as well. And I understand those who've pers per persisted with its turgid prose find many surprises in it. Right. And so you put together a timeline with these sources of what different people have said. And then you look at public evidence. And oftentimes you can, you can look and see that history as, as it happened mm -hmm. is very different than history as it's written. And, and I think that's what we're seeing here in the case of, of these politicians who abuse nonprofits. So their memoirs are not actually that contrived like the, the also-rans would, would have a ghost-written memoir. They, at this level, they feel so um, unassailable um, that they, they actually tell the truth often, do they? Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, what I would say, there are, certainly seem to be kernels of truth, for example, in Bill's lengthy book. Uh, I, I have a book agent, a good one, and I have... Uh, friends who publish book, books, and they tell me... Jerome Corsi being a, a good example, very very uh, often published, isn't he? Yes, he's done many, many books. But but when you go through the real mill, when you, when you deal with these top editors, as I've yet to do, but I, I know some other ones, um, 
They're, they don't look at you and say, yeah, why don't we do a thousand page book? I mean, no, there's no don't. market for a thousand page I, book. I'm involved in the other end translation. And so I know that even if you manage to get a book out in English of 200 pages, right. uh, the translators will you know, say, can we cut it down to save time and money? Right. So, so the fact that he made, uh, he got a thousand page book across the line in, in 2024, I think it was May of 2024, uh, sorry, 2004. Um, and the fact that uh, it wasn't really edited, and the fact that he got a monstrous advance, more than $10 million. Oh, but this is, this is allegedly, this is a way of uh, right. uh, paying favors, isn't it? As with the speaking tours. Of course, yeah, exactly. Because they, these often go straight to pulp, these memoirs, don't they? Absolutely. And, and, and instead what they do is they, they get, you know, the, the Democratic Party will buy a whole bunch of books, mm -hmm. or Republicans do the same thing, sadly. Oh, to, to hand out to loyal party right. aficionados. Right. right. Uh, and here you have, although they represent very different wings of the Democrat Party, I mean, uh, historically, uh, you know, you've got the North versus South split, you've got the racial divide and whatnot. Nevertheless, Obama and Biden have this, uh, what uh, NBC uh, News calls a surprising partnership, um, which is on display at a convention in the 2016 election. Uh, interesting that the word unusual uh, is truncated in the byline there. <laughs> it looks like that uh, Biden and Obama are in the final stages of an UNU. Maybe that's some <laughs> Hawaiian uh, fraternity. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, know but or, or some ritual. But anyway, what, what you're pointing out here is, uh, you know, this is the, the last generation or the most recent case of, uh, of one big boss in the Democrat blob handing over to the next guy, is it? Well, what I would, you know, when people think about the current, as you say in England, I think controversy, we say controversy, but incorrectly. But um, when we think about it, I, a lot comes together for me if you imagine that what's going on here is a plot to protect Obama and his mm -hmm. reputation. Barack Obama and Joe Biden must have known about Joe Biden's escapades in many countries, not mm -hmm. just in Ukraine when he was vice president. Uh, are you talking money or are you talking uh, more fleshly matters? Uh, all sorts, indiscretions, all sorts of, you know, he had to know. Mm -hmm. Somebody had to know. And, and if they don't know, then let me go back to what you told me about GCHQ. What are our 18 intelligence services doing if nobody knew about right. these problems? Mm -hmm. Um, let's go to the paper trail. This is what you're well known for in your own regular shows uh, hosted by Jason Goodman. Here we just have, and all of these links will be in the show notes, uh, obviously, as you expect from UK Column. Um, so that'll be under the upload on ukcolumn.org. Um, here we have a particularly interesting one, not least given the signatories, John F. Kerry and Senator Richard Lugar, well known because he was involved in uh, the uh, efforts to encircle Russia in many ways. And there's a center named after him in the former Soviet Republic of Georgia now, which does bio-research that we're not allowed to talk about, allegedly. But here, with a blacked out recipient's name, we have a December 2008 letter um, from these two Democrat, sorry, one Democrat, one Republican senator to an unnamed colleague, at least a, a redacted colleague, talking about an, a memorandum of understanding entered into by the names important here, the William J. Clinton Foundation and the office of the president-elect, an office that didn't actually exist for, uh, until the, the recent Democrat administrations brought it about, did it? Well, it, it's very, th this is something, you know, if you're a deal guy and you look at this, right away you say, this is complete fraud. Mm. A memorandum of understanding in American law means absolutely nothing by design. Uh, in British law as well. I, mean, uh, I should more technically say English law and Scots law, the two, separ two are separate. But I only came up across the phrase in public service and people's eyes would roll because it was basically a Blair era 
neologism, right. and probably was at the, in, in, in the Bush era right. in, the, in the States as well, uh, in order to say, uh, one concrete example from Britain is that the self-styled Association of Chief Police Officers, a private organization with no legal standing, it's now called the National Police Chiefs Council, had one of these MOUs uh, with the Law Society of England and Wales, which said, uh, we will not investigate each other. So if you have a big problem uh, with pederasty, for example, how handy if police and lawyers won't investigate each other? Right. That's, that's one extreme example, but that's the vintage of, of, a, of a memorandum of understanding. It has no force at law. It's a policy, isn't it? it, it well, it's, you do this by design, exactly. And so you look at this and you say, all right, this is a meaningless document. It was trotted out by Kerry and Lugar to try to quell the concerns that people had about how is Hillary going to be Secretary of State mm. if Bill's going to continue to operate this grift mill. And this, uh, when you look at the parties here, there is no William J. Clinton Foundation on December 18th, 2008 that has Articles of Incorporation and Bylaws. Not- this is the nitty-gritty of your research, isn't right. it? The, the times and states and cities, in some cases, in which case, in which the Clintons are licensed to collect for charity and the purposes as well. They, they were not. And then when you get to the office of the president-elect, guess mm. what happens to that office? On January 20th, 2009, it goes out of existence. Oh, it doesn't get rolled over into the no. office? No. Okay. So, so this is a meaningless structure, mm. and, and, and parties, it's meaningless. And there's a lot of talk in here about Bill Clinton's role at the Clinton Foundation, he was not an officer of a trustee. Let's bring it on screen again, because it says it's talking about greater transparency and predictability with regards to the activities of the Clinton Foundation in the context of, which means, oh dear, guys, we have a problem, in the context of Senator Clinton's, that's Hillary's service as Secretary of State. Right. You look at this in hindsight, and and then you look at the document itself, which people can access uh, through the show notes. the one thing it doesn't describe is a meeting that had just occurred two weeks prior to the date of this in China, in Hong Kong, where Bill met with, I think, 400 people uh, on the second and third Hong Kong time of December 2008, just as it had been announced that Hillary was going to be Secretary of State. That meeting is not mentioned specifically in the Memorandum of Understanding. Imagine if Trump had done that. Mm. Right. 17 intelligence agencies might have been on top of it. <laughs> right. So somebody... <laughs> In Hillary's own phrase. Right, exactly. I mean, as you hear Bill boldly, the, the Obama and Bill boldly announce on the one hand that Hillary's going to be Secretary of State, and on the other hand, he goes ahead with this Hong Kong conference that was planned a year prior. This will get more British focused uh, or for whichever country viewers are in as time goes on, because this isn't for historical interest that you're telling us this. You're telling us the, 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 the tricks that are used by uh, high-ranking political has-beens when they do their shakedowns, allegedly, which can, and your research can be uh, replicated right. with the necessary modifications made in other jurisdictions when you're going after other retired politicians. Absolutely. I, I think the Clinton bo- bo- uh, business model here has been replicated by many politicians already in many big countries. And not just the left-wingers either. Absolutely not. I mean, one of the things I should mention, I mentioned I was... Uh, Conservative Party chair at Yale, the American Conservative Union and its companion foundation are frauds, in my opinion. We've done shows about that. So I'm against fraud, and I'm actually independent now. I'm not a Republican, certainly not a Democrat. But um, it's just disgusting, frankly, what people in both parties are doing, abusing charities. Right. And tax matters are famously uh, something that the Americans can crack down on very hard and send guys with guns right. uh, or, or drag your name through the mud or, or have your children confiscated if you're the wrong kind of activist. Right. If you're a Tea Party or have it as in your name, we've seen all that with uh, uh, the lady who sounded like the, the, the Superman 
character who, who uh, I forget her name now, but who... Oh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene or... No, something like Laurie, but the, the, the lady who, who played, played the fifth uh, dozens of times in one uh, testimony to uh, hmm. Congress. You're talking about Lois Lerner? That's right, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Lois Lane was the Superman character. Right, right there yeah. you go. <laughs> anyway, but she, she, she was a record for saying, uh, I respectfully declined to answer, wasn't she? But the, the point there is the IRS, let's bring this on screen, this is their, um, their, their, their vault of Hillary dirt, as it were. Right. Um, and this is actually from their website itself, the FBI. Um, FBI, like CIA, have some surprising stuff on their website. In CIA's case, PDFs of conspiracy books that are quite useful research. Right. But... Here, the FBI, despite this past, um, you know, of, of the, the IRS basically saying, we went after anyone who seemed like an enemy of the Democrats, and we don't care if you know, uh, and which is at the bottom of Russiagate and everything else, and now the Trump impeachment. Nevertheless, they do have this record from the vault. How did it get online? Well, this is actually an ongoing process. When I first noticed it, it, it started going up, uh, I think, and people, computer experts can figure this out precisely. I believe it started going up in uh, 2017, and it's now up to more than 50 parts. And there's a, a tremendous amount of detail in these individual um, parts. Beyond that, you can, if you, it doesn't take a lot, you, you can see the, the excised pages, and you can figure out how, how big the file actually is and how many, how many pages are missing. Uh, in part, I believe one is the setup for why they investigated. And you learn there that the investigation into Hillary Clinton's email began in July of 2015. That's so, much earlier than it became public consciousness, isn't right. it? Right. Yeah. And it was actually the... But when uh, was the drive smashing incident when she took a, a hammer to her? That was in 14, I believe. It was when, when uh, the House committees or the Senate committees were on Benghazi. They were trying to get materials. And but that was in your state, wasn't it? Was it Chappaquiddick is there? Chappaquiddick. Chappaquiddick's another unfortunate place, but no, Chappaquiddick. But people who are interested in the topic can dive in and and see a lot here. I believe, actually, that this investigation was a limited hangout. It was not to get to the truth. It was instead to make sure that they retrieved as much of the Mm -hmm. damaging email traffic and back and forth. Well, posing uh, as if to say, look, we've got a a whole clutch of, of documents. Look at the volume here. You couldn't possibly ask for any more. Right, and the, the person, the inspector general who referred this to the FBI is a guy called Charles, he goes by Chuck, I think, McCullough. And he then was famous because he was one of the lawyers on the Trump, impe- uh, Trump impeachment effort. So how do you go from being inspector general, uh, you know, looking into this Hillary, so now you're going to go after Trump? I mean, it... Tax notes uh, refers here to presidential tax returns. We've put this in here because you want to point out to the audience that America with the possible exception of some Scandinavian countries, is one of the most open countries in the, the, the world, you know, possibly the most ex- uh, open, you can find out uh, what your president paid in tax as a private citizen. Well, and here our, our foreign or non-American viewers need to understand that our system is very complicated. And what the Clintons, for example, do is they disclose their federal tax returns, but not their state tax returns. That's an issue when if you are an athlete or a speech giver and you're giving speeches in California, you're supposed to pay California state income tax on that speech. So your people have to keep track of 50 jurisdictions and the US territories uh, as well, 
in order to pay all the taxes locally for any uh, right. shindig that they appear at. And that, that's income taxes. Then you have property taxes and other taxes. And, and so, as you would expect, the Clintons present... And they have offices in various states as well, or counties that, uh, that have local laws. Oh, very strict. In New York, actually, Washington, D.C., on paper, has very high taxes. Uh, Los Angeles, I think, has a city tax. New York City has mm -hmm. one. Um, so you have lots of things to keep track of, but you can you can get a start by going to this great site, frankly, and anybody you're interested in looking at, you can see. What I was interested in is to watch uh, the trend in the Clinton income. You know, they're making nothing, basically, right. and then all of a sudden, in, uh, sorry, in the Biden income, and then all of a sudden in 17, Joe Biden's income explodes. That's the, you've, you've written a note for me on this, right? So uh, you went through this uh, website, taxnotes.com slash presidential tax returns uh, with a fine tooth comb, fine toothed comb. And you found that uh, Joe and Jill Biden as a couple declared a joint total income before tax of $4.1 million uh, on their federal tax returns. Federal, this is before you get to Delaware and whatnot, for the, for the years 2001 to 2016. Oh, that's over 15 years. This works to an average of just over a quarter of a million dollars a year, 257648, during the 16-year period when Biden had finished his career as a senator and later became vice president. So he stepped down from the Senate in 2001 already, did he? No, 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 17. 17, I thought so. You're, you're yeah. talking about, okay, this, 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 yeah, got it. Now, leaving aside, you say here, fair questions uh, as to how he managed to sustain his living costs with these two mansions, as previously mentioned. Uh, his years with Jill Biden, who's a school teacher, uh, educator, educator, right, do not appear to show proven ability to derive investment income, that's surplus income, right, or to garner this outsized pay that you talk about. Um, and this is not just an academic matter because just a, a bit of number crunching you did here is if we look at the two tables in succession, which will be in the show notes, you're making the point that in the years, uh, the final year in question in this period, 2016, 2017, um, this is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, bls.gov. Uh, and what you find here is that the top decile, so the richest 10% of Americans in this one year, as the economy started to head south, uh, saw a loss on their pre-tax incomes of 8.3%. So here in 2016, the, the figure's not on screen, but from this table, you found that the average top decile income before tax was 269,000 uh, and some dollars, just shy of 270K in 2016. 2017, it has already declined to a mean of under 250, 247,174. So that's an 8.3% decline. That's the context in which the Bidens are swimming. And yet they managed to boost their income. Yeah, this, this, a little plug, I, I'm mostly anti-government bureaucracy, but the, our consumer expenditure survey is really useful because it, it dissects not only the income, but the spending patterns in great specificity. So anyone who's trying to figure out how to sell a product or service in the U.S., look at the, this data. But what it shows you in the top decile, that, that includes Warren Buffett. That includes people who are making, you know, 50 million or 100 million. This is the Gateses of the world as well. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you really take that top decile mean and then say, why don't we take out the top 3%? Right. You know, the, the super top, rich. The super yeah. rich and see how low that number goes to. You find it's probably not too, it might be higher than the 128, mm -hmm. 29 shown there. Uh, but it, it might be as low as, say, 150, 160. Mm -hmm. um, and that's for, tip. I think the slides, I say that there are 2.1 earners in, a, in the typical household and the highest 10%. So you've got to divide that number by 2.1. And when you start thinking about handing out a $3 million gig per year part-time 
1 million, 10 million. That is enormous. 2.1 is in the top decile as well. Does that imply that, uh, I know they have fewer children than poorer people. Uh, maybe that's reversing now in the US. Because you have, yeah, because of, it's a privilege to have children financially now. But it means that the top decile will usually have young adult children working at least part-time living with them. Some, yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Now, the, contra- the context is set here because of the stark contrast. In this one year, um, to, to, uh, 2016 to 2017, the Biden couple saw their income before tax climb from 338000 to $9.5 million. Yeah. 28 times increase in Biden pre-tax income in one year. And, this, uh, and, it, and you say that more than twice within just one year, uh, total Biden pre-tax income for a 16-year period from 2001 through 2016 of $4.1 million. It's, you know, to a numbers guy, it's indefensible. You, you, ha- you would have to get that kind of a jump in your income, your cash pay, not, not the value of your holdings, your stocks or your private, but cash in your pocket. You know, what could he have done that would justify getting this amount of money? It's uh, not because he's- a, Visit foreign countries? F- probably foreign countries. Good cover being vice president. Yeah, yeah. And, and how, did, you know, how did this new company in 17 get set up? One was set up, I think, in January, one in, in March. Typically, when you set up a company, there's advanced planning for it, and you delay the actual startup date. So this, to me, if uh, and I have circulated this for some time, I hope the IRS is looking hard at it, or not the IRS. I hope outside parties are looking at that this and pushing really hard because this stinks. Right, and here is Delaware's Form 200-01X for 2017. So this is the Biden couple in their home city of Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, you can see just above the barcode that their adjusted gross income is north of three quarters of a million dollars. Am I reading that in column A? Yep. And just over 10 million in column B. What's the difference? Uh, I think it's spouse and uh, I think the one on the right is the combined total. So Jill is making 778, I think. And, and Biden is, is, and, and and Joe is total, making total, over, yeah, over 10 million. I think. Right. But, but that just a bit, very few people outside you know celebrities singing sensations movie stars um, hedge fund gurus uh, you know, people who have actually mm-hmm. done something in the market uh, where there's a market for their product very few people make 10 million dollars right. this, this numbskull was not paid 10 million dollars for anything good I mean even before he lost his marbles he wasn't a renowned orator was he <laughs> no you know Obama probably could eat, eat him for breakfast or rhetorically but well, there's a, there's a defense uh, secretary who was the first defense secretary under Obama, who was a Republican, Bob Gates, I think is, was his name. And in his book, he famously said that Joe Biden has gotten every major policy decision he ever made in his life wrong, whether domestic or foreign. He was also a renowned bully on the floor of the Senate and dealing with witnesses over the decades, wasn't he? Right. Clarence Thomas and mm-hmm. Anita Hill mm-hmm. and others. Right. This brings us on to the Clinton Foundation itself. Um, but uh, just before we leave the Clintons, and uh, I'll go back to the, uh, that slide we just had, there's something more you want to say about this here, which is that the first entity on page 23 of this 103-page tax filing for 2017 for Delaware, we learn that two corporations called Subchapter S corporations, both formed that very year, 2017, were the ones that netted more than $10 million to the Bidens in their first partial years of operations. The first of those entities called Celtic Capri Corp 
generated the lion's share of it, 9.4, no, actually very nearly $9.5 million for the Bidens in just under a year of existence in 2017. This is more than 860 grand a month, which represents in your estimation, an heroic, if not completely unbelievable result for a startup. What are their products or services? Influence. They sell influence, basically. I think. That's what I think. And it, it, this is the kind of thing that, that, you know, I've dealt with some IRS people. And an ordinary IRS agent would look at this if it were not a Biden tax return and say, no way. Right. No way. You know, let's get down to brass tax. Let's bring in the FBI. Let's mm. bring in the Treasury Department. Let's look at these actual bank accounts. Let's see the actual date. Who is routing money into this corporation? Who is directing the affairs of this corporation? Maybe notify the district attorney at some point as well. I would think so. Mm. Uh, if it's across state lines, it's a, it might be a federal case and you might have, you know, many FBI offices looking into this. And the problem with this kind of behavior, this is... Uh, the Clintons also used dodgy companies to route money through. Maybe the Bushes have done the same thing. If it becomes or when it becomes an accepted practice that you don't really look into this kind of stuff, you're only encouraging the next generation so you're, of crooks. You're resolutely convinced that in the field offices of the FBI, maybe there's not a memo that's gone out on paper, but uh, they see if it's a household politician name, just leave it alone. I, I do, this is a suspicion, and obviously, it, it, uh, who knows if I'm right, but I just think it's possible that the, the FBI and the deep state has made a decision better to have a compromised president at the top than to have somebody uh, who's... who's that, that way they have six ways to Sunday to get back at you, as was uh, said right. by Comer, wasn't it? Against by him? Schumer. Schumer, yes. Yeah, by Senator Schumer. Uh, yeah. but, but in addition, remember, these, all these agencies want their off-the-books budgets. So what if these agencies are taking a share? Right. I mean, you can get very esoteric with this line of inquiry, but uh, uh, big U.S. agencies, and not just U.S. either, want to have self-financing right. flows, don't they, for their black ops of various kinds? Or, exactly. You know. um, then there's the second of these entities, Jacopa Corporation, an um, Italian name. Biden likes to boast of his Italian connections, made over... Half a million dollars, five five seven eight eight two for the Bidens in nine and a half months, which is over fifty eight thousand a month in its startup year. And uh, you don't know much about Jacopa either. Not yet, but I mean, I think that's the name of one of his. Uh, it might have been his wife's ancestors or something mm -hmm. like that. But still, it, ordinary Americans have, have recently erupted, and people around the world are noticing this this song by Oliver Anthony, I think his name is, about the rich men north of Richmond. Yeah. These people who are flourishing as the ordinary American suffers. Funny because the guy's from West Virginia, so he's actually north of Richmond himself. Unless, <laughs> anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a cultural line rather than a geographical right. one. He's maybe northwest of, of Richmond. But, but anyway, uh, the average American, and I think the average person in the UK, knows just how difficult it is to make 5,000 in the UK pounds a month extra from a right. startup. I mean, that's cash you're being paid. That's not me saying, well, the value, we'll put money into the private entity and that, and that will mark up the value of your shares. That's it's, actual cash. It's not cash. in equity, it's actually actual coming in. Actual cash, yeah. that's, it's un indefensible. See, at one point, there was a, a Dutch woman who was very keen on what you were doing investigating the Clinton Foundation. And I was in touch with her because I, I had heard you say that Norway and the Netherlands, which in many ways are two very Atlanticist countries who very closely ally themselves with Britain in military matters and intelligence matters and uh, business structural and tax matters, 
uh, all of these three governments have got together and said, we'll, we'll, we'll go into bed with the, the Clinton Foundation and our taxpayers are on the hook for it because it's a worthy chari charity ho-ho. And one of the things that uh, you asked me to look at, which I passed to this lady at the time, was the Dutch postcode lottery, right. which Vanessa Beely is very keen to look into as well because of the, the, the other swirls that it gets involved in, in Middle East and so on. Um, she made a phone call on our behalf to the Dutch uh, regulators saying uh, something about the Clinton Foundation uh, and naming some of the Dutch high up politicians as well who'd been in on this. And there was an audible intake of breath, which right. is unusual for the Dutch because they usually try to brass it out with you, brazen it out and say, oh, no, there's nothing to see here. That's their national manner, especially the, the bureaucrats. But actually, they were so flabbergasted by being asked this direct question by a polite Dutch woman that they said, well, you see, <laughs> this is a very select group of individuals we're talking about, and we do their tax returns differently. Yeah, well, the Dutch postcode lottery is actually part of an English company yeah. uh, that, that handles a bunch of these lotteries. And like the Clinton Foundation, it sounds good on paper that they give 50% of the money that they, they collect from the population, I guess by law, mm. uh, away to charity. Until you think about that for a second, the average charity, not the Clinton Foundation, the average charity gives 85% of its money away. Uh, of its revenue away per year. Celebrity charities, it's even in the sectors which pull part people's heartstrings like uh, uh, new limbs for veterans or um, cancer or breast uh, cancer AIDS. research. Yeah, you'll find that the big names, ch uh, uh, battered children and battered wives, the big names often have very high overheads, don't they, compared with the smaller charities? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, shame on some of these, these mega celebrities. Elton John, for example, uh, here's, a, here's a happily married gay man. And AIDS is really a problem for principally gay men uh, and intravenous drug users, but um, to attach his name to the Clinton Foundation and to, to charities that don't handle their books properly, I, I just, I don't, maybe he's just a deeply unhappy person at, at heart, but too many charities do that, too many celebrities do that. Let's plunge into the Clinton Foundation sure. as we near the end then, because here's their website. Um, there's their catch line in the um, italic font at the top, handwritten, putting people first. I think there's a missing word there. Putting Clinton people first. <laughs> <laughs> There's Bill, lifetime of service, uh, doing the meet and greet. And uh, let's bring on screen the various parts of the website, as you'd expect from a, prof a high profile charity. They have mission and values. They are putting people first. We keep score uh, on the right hand side. Before leaving office, Clinton said, I always kept score, which uh, he's not talking about uh, honest financial records here. He's talking about, have I made an impact? We're innovators in philanthropy. Oh, they first op opened in Harlem, and not far from where you well, live. No, no, let me stop you right there. That's not true. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, this thing was incorporated on October 23rd, 1997, as you could find if you contact the Secretary of State in Arkansas, in Little Rock. It operated... Let's bring the slide back on screen, because Little Rock's mentioned at the bottom right that they broke ground in Little Rock, state capital of Arkansas. Right. But, you know, if you've operated in the, the swankiest parts of uh, Britain and, and the, the US, why would you want to? Uh, have, a, have an office in America's 50th richest state. <laughs> well, the, the uh, laws under which this was set up originally are, are, are actually, they're specific laws. There's something called the Presidential Libraries Act of 1955 as amended in 1986. There's the Presidential Records Act of 1978. And those, those acts call for all of the records of the presidency, the official records, to be, if you want, you can have them housed in a charity. It has to be a public charity, meaning it can't be controlled by a family. It has to be generally by a board that's generally representative of the public. 
you can transfer the papers from the National Archives to this charity, relieve the federal government of the cost and, and burdens of, of keeping track of eight years of records in this case. And for that, you get a tax deduction, assuming that you do all this property. So the, it was- oh, so they, they assume it on your behalf, do they? Unless they have evidence to the contrary. Well, there, there is actually a legal agreement on my Substack. I've pointed people to it that was signed on November 18th, 2004, when the archives came up and running, that has very stringent obligations on the Clintons and the trustees to continue to operate this thing in conformity with law. And as we'll show you in a second, they, they didn't even manage to keep that going mm -hmm. for a full year after the time that the National Archives transferred the material. Before we show the revisions to uh, their accounts, um, how much tie-in does this have with this unique American phenomenon of a retiring president being given a library, which uh, I thought had a cons constitutional basis? You've told me that's not the case, but it's, it's just a tradition, is it then, that a, uh, a president, when he leaves office, gets a library and he gets to say where in the States it goes and some say over what material goes in it? Uh, the way the laws are written, and of course, we're in a post-law environment in the United States, it would seem, but the way the laws are written is that um, what happened with Nixon, uh, up until Nixon, the, the, the position that a president could take is that my papers are my personal property, mm. my official papers. And the, the, this is the, the, the last gasp of the 18th century idea with which America and France probably were, were born as republics, that uh, a president was a, a man of state. And right. so he'd, he'd done private dealings with statesmen, and so that was for himself. Right, So, but the Presidential Records Act clarified that and said, these records are presidential and the property of the National Archives, unless they're transferred, these are personal. And these presidential libraries are supposed to only handle primarily presidential records, not Hillary Clinton's records as Secretary of State is in the press now, which is ridiculous to put that in this library. Uh, and certainly not um, a collection, a mishmash. Of, we don't actually know whether all of Bill Clinton's presidential records are in his library. Is it open to the public? It is open to the public. Yeah. There was a big foot dragging on that, wasn't there? Well, uh, it, the library structure is open to the public. They're poor. He has an apartment, which he shouldn't have, on a uh, penthouse apartment, the family does, which not only is, I think, four or 5,000 square feet, which is very big, but has a terrace on the top. There's, I think, 10,000 square feet. So you're talking about a gigantic thing at the highest point in Little Rock overlooking the whole city, and, and he, only he has access to this. You've given me uh, this mental image of him as a latter-day Nebuchadnezzar exactly. on the palace wall saying, is not this great Little Rock which I have built? <laughs> That's right. And, and, and Yeah, the hanging gardens are babbling along <laughs> instead of Babylon. But here are the disclosures uh, on the Clinton Foundation. They've got their annual reports. And then a casual glance will show that their audited financial statements and your favorite form, the 990 at the Inland Revenue Service, the, the decisive annual return, look how many times they have had to amend that in a, de a generation of operation. They amended them in 2010, 2011, 2012, and 2013, four years in succession. Might you have had something to do with that? I think I did have a little bit to do with the, the amendments there, but but when we there are two sorts of documents here. The annual mm -hmm. reports are just marketing puff pieces. There's no obligation under U.S. law to produce a quote annual report. This and, is the kind of you know we changed lives in 75 exactly. countries. Yeah. Well, typically what you do is you slap a picture of a, a, a crying black child mm -hmm. or, or dark. Well, we just saw child. one, didn't we? Yeah, you slap that person on the cover, flies buzzing around, and then you you say that you're doing great work in Africa. 
I've traveled, as we mentioned, in Africa. It's, it's actually very difficult for an auditor, even today in 2023, to get to some of these remote sites and check and make sure that they're actually doing what they say they're doing. But mm. to starting here, there is no entity, legal entity, called the Clinton Foundation. There just right. isn't one. That, that's the key takeaway from the whole of your work, isn't it? Yeah. So, so you look at this site and you know, starting off saying, it's describing something about the Clinton Foundation. So there is no such thing. Uh, who's and, this president, Donna E. Shalala, by the way, the president of the Clinton Foundation? She's a Clinton, she was, that, that, she was president back in 2015. So what happened in early 2000, uh, 15 March 16th, I did that thing. I didn't know that Peter Schweitzer was hard at work on his Clinton cash, cash book, which came out in, I think, to the Times in late April and to the public in May of 2015. He's so, another prolific author. People should look up. He's fantastic. Fan mm -hmm. And also a fantastic human being. So there was amazing interest in, in, in that so much. And I was do I've got different journalists to write pieces saying the Clinton Foundation needs to amend its tax filings. It was, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're not gonna. Then they did it. Uh, but they didn't do it properly. So they're going to have to do it again if they try to remain in existence. But um, uh, We have to watch our language in UK, Colin, but a, a nice bit of British slang for that, you'll probably recognise you've been around here enough, is they made a half-assed attempt. Yeah, which you spell with an R, I think. Uh, yes. <laughs> I didn't use the word. Yeah. Occasionally, we let ourselves get away with uh, some mild observations of that kind. Now we're going to have three uh, pages from this report come up. BKD no longer exists. They're the legal firm which drew like it accounting up. Firm, accounting firm. Uh, sorry, accounting firm. Big, big important difference in Washington and New York. But uh, here is the, okay, the William J. Clinton Foundation, Inc. Oh, hang on. It's a foundation and it's incorporated. Interesting. There, there, there is no such company. Okay. And, and you look at this, and pe people would look at this if you're not from the United States and if you're not familiar with accounting, you might say, well, this is an audit. Well, I mean, with my former spook and, form and current translator roles, uh, caps on, that's the first thing I would go to, is, is, is there's, a, there's a contradictio in terminis here. You can't be a foundation and incorporated, can you? You can be. Okay. You can be. But, but there is, to, here's, the, here's the issue why names are so important. Under our system, if you allow a foundation to have multiple names that really aren't legal, mm -hmm. you can trick the UK government yeah. to sending money to an account in New York. I'm not saying they did this, but maybe they did. In New York, the, to, to a name that sounds like the name of the foundation, but isn't. What, what mid-ranking treasury person who signs off on the, the tranches is going to second guess whether the Clinton Foundation right. manifestation on, on, on the screen or on paper is the correct one? Right, and by the, by, by the power of Google, we were able to get, uh, and then something in contact with the Irish government that uh, that complied with the Freedom of Information Act equivalent under our Irish law and, and furnished all these emails in 2003 back and forth to Ireland. With Norway, you've had some success as well, haven't you? And, and they're quite Nor transparent. And with Norway, we'd hope that someday uh, Canada and Australia and Netherlands and yeah. other places in Sweden will comply. But normally, in, in my business career, the, one of the first things they had me do when I was 24 years old and I showed up for work on June 9th, 1980, was check a public document to make sure that it was right. Check the name. Is CIT Financial Corporation, is that the name of the company? So if you come across, that's not the real name of the company. The next line does not describe a, a, a legally compliant audit, right? This is a report, not an audit, and it needs to be of the consolidated financial statements, which means all of the Clinton Foundation, not just its financial statements. So by, by the, the very title of this, like the MOU, 
My, my father is always advising people who are uh, suspicious of what's happening to their local congregation, especially if they're in the Church of England or Church of Scotland now, always says that if you have any influence like being on the parish council, uh, you must demand a consolidated right. set of accounts. And particularly, it must tie over from the year closing balance to the next year's opening balance. Exactly. Which exactly. very rarely happens with charities, certainly churches. It, it, absolutely. It, with the good charities I know about, it's axiomatic that mm. it happens. But in, in, it's funny, without having seen the, the detail, that's exactly the case in this, this document here. We can't... We've deliberately not prepared me on this. Right. So. Well, so in this case, you have, we have three sets of financial statements in America. We have three main ones. The income statement, your revenues, your expenses, what's the difference? Is that the 990? No. Okay. This is for an audit. So your, your, your annual income... All of your expenses and what's the net profit that you earned? It measured not the cash but the net profit. Mm -hmm. Then we do the same thing looking at cash movements because you can have accounts receivable and payables that are different. And then we check the balance sheet. Does the net do the net assets assets less liabilities? The third one is: Did they tell the same story in the in the first two? Right. Yeah. And in this document, they don't. Mm. And you can see it. If we had time, I could show everybody. But it's massively off. All right. You have hundreds of back episodes people can watch where you break right. it down minutiously. But uh, let's move on to this. Right. This is the signing off by this now defunct uh, accountancy firm, June 9, two thousand and six. Um, we won't read it all, uh, but the, 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 the crucial thing in any West, well, any country in the world now, uh, and I know this is a translator often they, they, that you, you see this, that the crucial uh, statement for which they're on the hook is, in our opinion, it's a fair uh, reflection. Well, I would draw our viewers' attention to two things. It's addressed to who? The board of directors. This entity did not have a board of directors on June 9th. 2006. It had what was called a board of trustees. That's the so articles did of corporate. BKD make this up or what? Well, typically what accounting, accounting firms do around the world is they go to the management team, and the, in this case, the board of directors, and they say, you're going to make representations to us in a side letter that we're not, not going to show the public. Oh, I translate some of this stuff as well. I know how it works. Right. It's just with, you know, small fry companies often. Right. So you're going to, they'll represent that you are typically, you are, this is the name of the company and the company is duly organized and lawfully operated in every jurisdiction mm -hmm. in which is solicited or received money and the, uh, all these different representations. On the basis of that, you'll get a loosely run, poorly run firm like BKD, which had to be merged, I would argue, out of existence to issue this kind of a letter on June 9th, 2006, when there were no articles of incorporation, there were no bylaws, and there had never been a lawfully compliant audit, which is required under New York law, where the Clinton Foundation began to operate in 1998. This is key for anyone watching outside the US. The Clinton Foundation, in any of its names, does not exist in America. Right. right? America doesn't exist in tax law in that sense, does it? It right. exists in the state of New York. Right. Right, exactly. And, and you can see this. I mean, if you have the time and the patience and the interest. On the other hand, if what you're trying to do is get on the right side of a celebrity mm. who is so, his Rolodex or modern version of Rolodex is so amazing that once you get on Bill Clinton's right side, you can get right into the UN, the WHO, meet Bill Gates, whatever you need to do. So will you give money to this operation for the opportunity to rub shoulders at the Clinton Global Initiative with all these other people who are trying to concoct crooked deals in the unregulated globalist system? Of course you will. And they say here in the second paragraph, an audit includes examining on a test basis, so just samples at random, evidence supporting the amounts and disclosures in the financial statement. So they're admitting, although this, this isn't particularly incriminating, but they do have to admit that, as with any other sizable audit, they cannot do more than a, a nominal share. And the final extract 
uh, of this uh, report that you wanted me to put on screen was page four, uh, the statements of assets versus liabilities and net assets. Right. So here I told you about total net assets. You see the difference at the bottom goes from 161.75. Um, in 2005, it's 161.75 million. And in 2004, I'm really stretching my eyesight here, it's 105.8. So that difference on every account that's shown here in the, in the two balance sheets needs to be mirrored in the cash flow statement. Mm -hmm. And there's an $11,878,000 mistake, both in the accounts payable and in the gross property, uh, sorry, and, and in gross, uh, gross property and uh, the gross property account, which is you have to in, in derive it or look at the footnotes in here to, to, to see what I'm talking about. Have you ever come across auditors uh, not making any fuss about a $12 million difference? Uh, they would go crazy. And then, then beyond that, what, what's really interesting, and this I'm writing up in my Substack, you can take the cash flow statement for 2004, and you can reverse all those entries and the income statement for 2004, and derive the balance sheet for 2003. And when you do that... And this isn't specific to America with its particularly enhanced transparency. This, this can be done in any Western country, couldn't it? A any country in the world. Well, that whichever uses... politician or has been you're interested in. Right. And so what, what this shows is that it has long-term debt outstanding. This, these financial statements assume that they borrowed 28,479, uh, whatever that number is, 870, as of December 31st, 2003, wherein other disclosures made under penalties of perjury we learned that they didn't borrow that money until 2004. But why would they have $28.5 million of long-term debt? A good question, because... I thought everyone was queuing up to pay their dues to them. What happened in 2004? It was a presidential election. Right. They needed money. And in 2000... Sounds a bit like the Scottish National Party, but that's not <laughs> right. something you follow closely. Right. And so in actual fact, there's a, there's a, there's a $28 million number, which is wrong. There's an $11 million number that I mentioned, which is wrong. And by my calculation, you add those two numbers, which are liabilities, up, and you need to have an offsetting asset to make the balance sheet work. So there's a $40 million goosing of the December 31, 2003 implied gross property, meaning they were basically inventing numbers and inflating the value of the Little Rock complex. And this is, a this is a common thing that's done in China in their economy. It's done across America and the West with infrastructure projects. This is a case study in that. It's provable without, I don't need to speak to anybody at the foundation. I can just show you. And ex accountants who are listening to this will, will know what I'm talking about. Here's three US states in quick succession um, and what you have to do uh, to find out what charity's uh, money uh, is, is, is uh, sloshing around. Uh, we'll show the New York State one first, charitiesnys.com. It's run in that case by the State Office of the Attorney General, the Chief Law Officer. We now find it, as, as America, pardon the expression, but falls apart. Um, you, you often find that the state attorneys general from the more conservative states are the ones who club, club together in groups of a dozen or more now and write to Washington and say, we, we're going to thumb our nose at you on this or that policy, or we have our questions about what goes on in Washington. Never mind that. But um, here, the state office of the attorney general, so the chief law officer for the state, a very elevated position in New York state, uh, runs a charities bureau registry search. Uh, the other most important state in terms of population and money is California. 
they, there, the office of the AG seems to jointly run it with the Department of Justice of the state. They have a registry verification search. You can search the files of the registry of charitable trusts. And you wanted to quote this as a, a best practice, practice example because perhaps of all that Scottish prudence and, and Christian heritage they have. North Carolina, UK, you say is the, uh, is the, the, the doyen, the paragon here uh, of, of uh, how a state in the US should run its charity disclosures because with this search tool, you can, if, if I remember correctly what you were telling me yesterday, you can actually find out all the correspondence to and from the charity as they've been discussing with state officials uh, how their money is, is operated. Right. And so what's really interesting, just with these three and then the Clinton charity and there are mm -hmm. other, other sources, you can look and see what they told New York and what they told California and what they told North Carolina, what they're telling the public on their site and what they told the IRS. And you'll discover in key periods like 2005 and six. Their main site excludes very damaging information, which was told to the IRS. Very damaging in the sense that the 2005 filing came together just as Hillary was running for re-election, and she needed to win. And the Clintons needed to gain money that we're going to talk about from foreign governments through this thing, Unitaid, which is part of the World Health Organization. So they couldn't have a scandal erupt uh, in 2006, before November 2006. And remember, Hillary ran for president the first time, announcing January 20th, 2007. So when we, the, all of these different state sites have information going well back into time that you can put together and you can say, what, why were they telling North Carolina something different than California? Why did they exclude information about foreign government grants, which is required under New York state law and California law? Why did they omit all that? Uh, even through that MOU discussion, they've never amended their filings to let us know exactly what amounts went from what foreign governments to various Clinton entities from 97 through 2007. We don't know. That brings us to the final segment on foreign governments, because whichever Western country you are watching from, you too, O taxpayer, have funded the Clinton Foundation, which, as we've just seen in that segment, doesn't exist. And to the extent that it does exist, it doesn't disclose its money properly, particularly in election years, you would say. Right. Uh, so here we are, foreign support. Here is another, uh, I mean it with no disrespect whatsoever, but uh, a carefully chosen selection of smiling black people. I think we can get, you know, well, get away with, we don't even need to say that. We're, we're saying that straight out because it's obviously right. a cynical plot. Right, a ploy, I should say. But the Global Fund, what a wonderful name. The Global Fund invests four billion US dollars a year to defeat HIV, TB, and malaria, the big ticket diseases that uh, the, the politicians and retired politicians of this year like to crusade against. Um, and look, pride of place here in Burkina Faso, a mobile app replaces pen and paper records. So this is digital health identity coming in. Often it's the poorest African countries that get saddled with this first, isn't it? Malawi as well. Right. I don't know if your viewership would be familiar with the American sitcom called Seinfeld, but Seinfeld is a very funny oh, sitcom. It's been syndicated in Britain a lot as well. Right. Yeah. And so there's an episode, there's an annoying character called George Costanza, who's constantly getting fired. And, he, and it's around Christmas time and the boss of this company says, all right, I will give money to anybody who is involved with a charity. And George is like, oh, how can I take advantage of this? So he comes up with this charity and he calls it the human fund, not the global fund. But he pronounced it because he's really annoying, the human with his accent. Oh, exaggerated New York accent. Right, yeah. the human fund. And so there's this long thing about the boss, love George, you're so creative. I want to give you a check for $25,000. This is back in the 1990s. You know, what does your human fund do? And George's like, well, uh, 
<laughs> and he gets caught out, et cetera. Similarly with the Global Fund, there's two wonderful people, Larry Doyle and John Moynihan, who appeared before Congress in 2018, uh, warning about the Clinton Foundation and the Global Fund. They had somebody working with them who had been in the Inspector General's office of the Global Fund, and at, back then had concluded that 75% of the money sent to the Global Fund was stolen. 75%. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding. This is the Inspector General concluded this. Money given to that fund had a one in four chance of being used lawfully. Right. And, and, and so you think about it. If you were trying to set up a real charity, I'd love to see a charity, a real charity regulation, multinational enterprise be set up in a poor country, maybe in Africa. You, you, would, you would run really hard against this. So the Global Fund was set up in January of 2002. In its first year, 2002, it had no projects because there weren't organizations capable of going into these remote areas to do what they said they were going to do. And that's why the Board of Trustees worth itself wouldn't allow incorporation until there were projects, right? Right. Well, who was one of the founding persons of, of the Global Fund? The eminent Rajat Gupta, who later went to jail, the managing partner of McKinsey, who later goes to jail for insider trading, alleged insider trading. McKinsey trade. supplies a large share of the spooks Right. Uh, who get uh, side swiped in mid-career right. in uh, the you know the, the big three allied countries U.S. U.K. France McKinsey right. runs large swathes of their right. government if not by spookery then by presenting consultancies uh, to the the, the 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 financial parts of government absolutely and the health parts of government as well so 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 the global fund couldn't use the money that it had but that didn't stop the Clintons and and uh, Jacques Chirac is this Unitate was his baby. But Gordon Brown and, and Tony Blair were involved. Let's show that then. Unitaid. This is audited financial statements for the year ending 31st of December 2021. And you're mentioning Chirac as well as the British. Uh, my note here that you've given me says that Britain, and the question mark is why and how, Britain decided to pump large sums into Unitaid, which is part of the World Health Organization, so a second removed part of the UN, basically. Uh, they were doing so by the financial year 2006 to 2007, when a principal named beneficiary in the early years was, quote, Clinton Foundation HIV slash AIDS initiative. Now, what's the problem there? Didn't exist. It was, you know, they, they, they couldn't, uh, my thesis is they could not get it approved because Bill and I, a fellow called Ira Magaziner, who had been a Rhodes Scholar with Bill, uh, they began gallivanting around the world early in 2002, before the Clinton Foundation had any... We're going back half a century again to Bill playing around in Oxford, and so much begins then, doesn't it? And yeah. you being of the same vintage, you recall, you, you've having been in Britain in the same era, you, you smell a rat more than others as to what's being right. claimed. But... Uh, not the same. I'm 10 years younger, <laughs> but I'm uh, just kidding. But the, the point here is that the, um, this Unitate thing, uh, in 7 and 8, when what was going on, Hillary Clinton was running for president, mm -hmm. um, has in its books, which people can see for themselves, they detail in these financial statements how much money was sent. In, they call it 6-7 in one strange period, but it's basically 2007. And how much money was sent in 2008 on what basis? There are actually good minutes in this Unitate site where internal board meetings are discussed and it, there appears to be a problem that somebody had. I don't know what it was exactly, but in 2007 and 2008, approximately $200 million went to Clinton Foundation HIV AIDS initiative, which didn't exist. And explicitly in March of 2008, the, where it was headquartered, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, 
shut it down. You can go see that. Michael uh, Smith, who's a great guy from Australia, worked with me and wrote this up because the Australian government sent a lot of money as well to this, this thing at the same time. And you know, when you talk to somebody and you say, well, what are you doing in your spare time? Well, I'm curing AIDS. You know, I'm fighting HIV and AIDS. There's some legitimate questions about whether the Clinton Foundation was actually even doing that right to the extent some of that money was going to actually provide these generic HIV AIDS drugs. Were they good? Generic is the key word because uh, the Indian pharmaceutical company Ranbaxy, R-A-N, isn't it? Ranbaxy, R-A-N-B-A-X-Y, provided a large amount of what was sent to Africa. And you regard, you're not a medical man, but you regard this as substandard and in some cases dangerous, don't you? Extremely dangerous. I mean, in those heady days when, and I've talked to a large number of these real experts, not Fauci, real medical doctor experts. The, some of the original drugs that were given to people who tested positive for HIV, which leads you eventually to AIDS, killed people. I mean, right. beyond the Ranbaxy ones. I mean, Peter Duisberg is the, is the main right. guy there, I isn't he? The, the German who, who was perhaps the, the, the most, one of the most celebrated virologists in the world and whose career was completely killed by standing up to Fauci, wasn't it? Right. And, and so this, this is a, a very dangerous project and, and there's a woman who wrote the, I think you have the link to Fortune Magazine article, mm-hmm. um, and subsequently a book called uh, Bottle of Lies. Uh, there's, it's very dangerous to be giving drugs out to people. There we go, dirty medicine. Yeah, Catherine Eben. Now, Catherine it was a Rhodes Scholar, and she worked for Ira Magaziner, and she, in my view, did great work on May 15, 2013, which is that several days, like three days after Lois Lerner, admitted that she had been targeting, the IRS may have been targeting conservatives. Mm-hmm. This piece appears. Sadly, this is behind a paywall, but you can summarize it for us. It's a decade old now. Yeah, it's, it's a very well-written and poignant tale of a whistleblower who, or somebody inside Renboxi who, who discovered South Africa alerted the company that there was a problem with their drugs. And this person at Renboxi felt to him to figure out what was the problem. And he, he studied it, and to his horror, he, disc- he determined that they didn't have any authorized drugs, but they were providing fake drugs all over the world. And he went in with this impassioned plea to the CEO of the company, this is recounted in the book and elsewhere, and said, you know, we've got the a book title again? I remember I read it. Bo- Bottle of Lies. Bottle of Lies, uh, particularly gripping as an audiobook, I found, but I prefer to listen to them as audiobooks when I can. So, so this whistleblower, a person who becomes a whistleblower after this interchange, goes into the CEO of Rambaxi then and says, we got to do something about that. And the CEO famously says, what do we care about this? It's just blacks dying in Africa. Right, right. I mean, <laughs> and this, I'm, you know, we're we, we, we treading carefully here because uh, white men are not supposed to make these comments anymore, but people can judge that whether we mean any uh, scandal by it or not. That book, Bottle of Lies, uh, repeatedly sets out, and Indians would be the first, honest Indians would be the first by the million to, to ad- admit this, they had a problem with shysters and cowboys, uh, first of all taking business process outsourcing, BPO, and then taking the technicals, taking the synthesis right. of pharmaceuticals, and your FDA is by far, you know, dis- despite the COVID collapse of its standards, by far the most stringent and earliest of its type in the world for medical and food regulation. And FDA, as, as it runs you know, like a stick of rock, uh, lettering on a stick of rock through the whole book, FDA was very jealous of its procedures and it was breaking all kinds of norms and, and being the first in many ways uh, to allow an Indian pharmaceutical in-country to produce this stuff under FDA license. 
Well, it's the, the, the horror stories in there. You know, you say the FDA was rigorous. In that time frame, what this book and other reporting and Rambaxi was fined in the U.S. $500,000, $500 million, rather, in part for this, this stuff. What you discover is that actually the FDA had a convention where uh, to deal with foreign inspections, they, to not run afoul of U.S.-Indian relations, they would notify the drug company in advance if an FDA inspection team was coming to, to look at the laboratory. Right. Come on, you can't and do that. Hedley Reese and uh, Debbie Evans, who uh, both report very heavily for UK column on health matters, particularly the MHRA, Britain's equivalent of the FDA, have repeatedly drawn attention to one of the many horrors there now, which is, and this will spread no doubt to the FDA and the EMA and Australia's TGA before you can you know, say boo to a goose because they're all in, in league together now. MHRA is running on point with this as so much else. They will now do virtual inspections. Microsoft right. software will allow them to put virtual goggles on and that's a step beyond tipping off the Indians that the Americans will be here at 9 a.m., isn't it, right. you know, or next week. This is now saying, well, we'll put the goggles on figuratively or literally, sit at the monitor, and you show us what you think is fit to show us. Right. It's really, it's, it's just disgusting. Uh, here's the William J. Clinton Foundation UK record. So they exist in various guises. This is from Britain's company's house. Uh, where British uh, registered companies uh, have to uh, register. For charity and for business law, of course, you've got three jurisdictions, England and Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. We're concentrating here on England and Wales. Um, your, your point here is that our government, um, the regulators and the aid donors in, the, in, in our system, failed to appreciate that, quote, the William J. Clinton Presidential Foundation, end quote, had no authority to operate as a charity in 49 of 50 U.S. states. In fact, only in the city of Little Rock, right. not even and in the rest of Arkansas. Not even in the city of Little Rock, in a portion of the city of Little Rock, in a special park. And remember, we looked at that date, June 9th, 2006, when I say the audit mm -hmm. was complete bogus. And this is now 11 months on. This is Well, and, and the initial contact came in May of 2007. If you go into the file, the filing history, you'll see all this. They, they initially approached, the, the Clinton Foundation did, and they, in my opinion, lied to the regulators. They, 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 in many places, they make representations under oath to your regulator, to whoever this is. This is the company's this house. Is company's house. And yeah. later to the Charities Commission about their legal status, which is not, not accurate. And then they file the, the equivalent, your articles of whatever they're called. Incorporation, I think, yeah. Association or whatever mm -hmm. they are. Um, in here, you can read them. And in the UK, uh, this filing gives this entity, all sorts of authority, which is outside the parent company's authority. It's something you cannot actually do under U.S. law. So, I mean, this, this is a, a poster child here in how not to run uh, an operation. And this is U.S., U.K., you would think. I mean, we're reasonably close to countries and at, at mo most times. And long shared Unlike many countries, there's no language barrier. You can pick up the phone and discuss dodgy business. Well, you're being very kind to me, I think. So. Some would argue that there is a language barrier and you can understand me. But they got wound up in uh, 2017, the British branch. They had to be, I think, because in part of some of the disclosure, we were pushing very, very hard here. And, and still, all of these filings are incorrect. And there are some very dodgy people associated. Mm. And I'm not going to bring up their names, but people can look at the filing history. There are people who have been called out for abuses in privatizations who may be associated with this. And City sharks, you would call them. Yes. Yeah. Right. And your point is, had they but picked up the phone or, or browsed a website written in, okay, admittedly US English, but they would have found, our people, our regulators and donors, would have found that this foundation, 
uh, under the, one of the many names it touts, had no authority to collect money for these grandiose schemes of uh, putting an end to AIDS or uh, fighting climate change. Right. When you, so when you look at this, this... goes back to 2002, the fundraising in Britain. Right. So well, Blair's still in his... just into his second term by that point. Right. And, and there's a lot... Actually, there's a lot written about it by Bill and others that document when the meetings occurred. And I imagine there are meeting notes in the British system that may or may not be accessible. The Blair government famously had what we call a kitchen cabinet. So they're probably stuffed away in someone's back pocket, but they, they will exist. Right. Uh, a few years later, Blair copied your Freedom of Information Act and famously said afterwards, it was his greatest re regret in office that he'd given <laughs> us a Freedom of Information Act. Right. Well, uh, of course, you don't pay, your taxpayers don't pay for your government, do they? Or do they? Oh, uh, allegedly. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> Don't know how else. Um, and your other question here, this is really where we're ending, is why did our government allow this William J. Clinton Foundation UK to spring into existence under, well, you've said UK law, but we would say the law of England and Wales, to be technically correct, right. as a charity registered in England and Wales, starting in 2007, let's put that back on screen to show the date again, under manifestly false and materially misleading premises. That's quite an accusation, so you've right. got to defend it. I, I can easily defend it. I mean, you, have to, you would have to go and look at the articles to see all the different things that you're allowed to do. Uh, but the powers that are granted to this UK uh, entity by these, this filing are explicitly denied in the US. So you can't deny authority to do something uh, in, in the US and then have that, that entity say, well, I can't do it in the US, I'll just do it in the UK. That's, ex that's for verboten, as the Germans would say. You, you can't do that, yet they did do it. So places to people to go to get their heads around this mammoth story. Uh, this isn't your timeline. This is just one that you recommend. You don't know who's behind it. Right. Uh, the Clinton Foundation timeline is one place that people can go. It will be in the show notes. Uh, another is where you put in your regular appearances. Dear Jason Goodman, uh, right. who is um, onto his ninth YouTube channel because he keeps getting burned by the right. YouTube police, doesn't he? Uh, his uh, platform is Crowdsource the Truth. Uh, UK Column has put in appearances there. And if you look at the playlists, many of our viewers will recognize that his current regulars uh, include Trevor Coult, uh, Northern Irish tough guy, uh, recipient of the Military Cross, who campaigns for veterans and has a lot more to comment about. John Cullen, we've also done uh, shows with on um, pandemic statistics. Uh, and there is one of your two formats as well, Sunday with Charles. Uh, that's 59 videos, but you also have um, many hundreds of episodes of what was called Charles Hotel is Closing In. Well, no, actually, so this is just on Crowdsource the Truth 9. So we, we started doing these videos in J June of 2017. Right, so so we totted up to many hundreds because of the different right. channel strikes that you got. Yeah. Right. And you can also see it now on Rumble, on Odyssey. On a, on so there, is, there are some non-YouTube repositories where all of your hundreds of episodes are gathered together. Not yet all, but many. Mm -hmm. Hundreds. Not, it's probably 750, as a guess. And the average length is about two hours. And uh, if that's too much detail for people or they prefer text, you have a Substack blog, charleshotel.substack.com, and you entitle it False Philanthropy. Right. This is, that's actually the name uh, that, that they used in the very beginning to expose the Clinton Foundation. I just I concluded it was false philanthropy, and I wanted to lay out for people who are interested in it, what are the implications of allowing false philanthropy to be lauded and supported uh, for decades by powerful people? And so this is a site I, I had had experience, and I appreciate the chance to come on this show um, very much, but I had experience in print media, radio, movies, podcasts, whatever, television. 
And there's not enough time to really give this right. the subject justice. We, we've already run for an hour and a half, which is unusual for UK column interviews, but people will appreciate that if you've done 750 times two hours on this, and that's all in your head, there is a heck of a lot of detail there. Right. And so people can't just start reading your Substack ab initio. Right, and they, they, they have to get the story first. Well, actually, in the Substack, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to, to, to do sequential for free uh, subscribers, maybe five pages, but for the paid subscribers, really in-depth stuff, mm. laying all this out. And I hope- Pe People grumble about paid Substack, and they might say, oh, Charles is a wealthy man. Why does he need a paid Substack? Well, what, is that a, a threshold of interest? Are you setting a qualification here that you don't want dilettantes on your well, Substack? There's that, and there's, there are out-of-pocket costs that you know, it would be nice if I didn't have to pay all of them. I have to date and since 2002, but you know, it's to get, get some engagement and some- uh, uh, collegial camaraderie, uh, as you say. But um, the, what we're going to do, I hope, in the Substack is is not only deal with the American perspective, but I'm seeing, as example here, people in the UK are interested, and so maybe there's a UK-US angle, and maybe there'll be a Dutch. Right. Uh, I mean, right. the final slide exemplifies that. Uh, Breitbart is reporting that international elites are rushing to embrace the Clinton Global Initiative, and uh, this is a very recent date, isn't it? You pointed it, me to this this morning. This, this to me, is pathetic. It really is. The people who today would sign up to give money to go to the Clinton Global Initiative should be ashamed of themselves. Because they're never the, the first Clinton Global Initiative was held in, in September of 2005. So April 26th, I would argue, 2005, the Clinton parent Clinton Foundation went out of formal legal existence. By September, they have their first meeting in New York. They're not registered in New York. You have to be registered, not only in New York, but in every county in New York State where you want to use a name that's different than your parent company name, you have to register. And they d have never done that. Um, so they hold this gab fest. In 2005, they've held a number of other gab fests. There's never been a proper accounting for any of that. And it's the Clinton Global Initiative that they, where they throw out the massive numbers they claim to have raised. You know, if you add it all up, it's over $100 billion. Uh, and $100 billion. Crazy. Dollars. No, and, and, and there's so many cases. This How is, many countries make $100 billion? Not many, but there's so many cases, actually, which in hindsight are hilarious, of, of people who were given awards at the Clinton Global Initiative who turn out to be complete frauds. So one of them was this guy called, um, an Italian guy, I forget his exact name, who came, he was young, he was handsome, he arrives in New York City and somehow gets to meet Doug Band, a disciple or uh, ally of uh, Bill Clinton and Clinton. And he says, his name is Raphael Folieri. And, he, and he, uh, the accent, the wavy hair, the movie star looks. Um, my father works for the Catholic Church. We're going to give away spare real estate. I need people to invest in, you know, derelict Catholic-owned properties. Can we put together a fund? He puts together a the fund. The Vatican didn't have any money for him. It was completely invented. The whole mm. story was invented, but he, he got enough suckers to give him money. And not only that, he got that famous movie star, starlet, Anne Hathaway. He was dating her. He was living large. He, he shows up at the Clinton Global Initiative. He gets arrested and thrown in jail from the Clinton Global Initiative. Jelaine Maxwell, same deal. She was served at the Clinton Global Initiative. You can go on and on and on. Pick apart. Take anybody who's given money. So, so not just the uh, the crafty ones, but dare I say that the, the sweetheart figures like uh, Anne Hathaway, who doesn't have any dirt on her, as far as I know. Right. And well, I'll tell you another one who, who was at the Clinton Global Initiative who should know better is Rupert Murdoch. And at the Global Initiative, he famously was not, he's definitely not a in theory, a Democrat back then in 2006, I think it was, 
wrote a $5 million check to the Clinton Climate Initiative, which definitely doesn't exist. That has never even had well, a pretense of existing. I've watched a fair amount of your output and I'd never heard of the Clinton Climate Initiative. Well, Rupert gave $5 million with Barbara Streisand, who said she gave a million, but when you check her papers, it doesn't look like she wrote the checks. And, and how would a bank cash such a check? I, well, because there's one rule for thee and another for me, you know. So they, they would only be able to do that by booking the money over to some other account, wouldn't they? Well, do you think any of our big banks want to stay on the right side of presidents? Mm. You know? We could go on and on, Charles, but we'll have to call it a day there with this interview. Uh, we've set out where people can see and listen to your output. Uh, in closing, your, your impressions of Plymouth. Oh, it's a real honor to be here. I'm a history buff, and I look forward to seeing the Mayflower Steps and shot, doing some shopping, checking out the thing. I'm very uh, interested and grateful to be here. Charles Hotel, thank you very much. Thank you.